assignments due today are, or only assignment due today for you is the exam replacement if you're doing that. Um, if you have something that can be turned in on DQL, you can submit it to any of the drop boxes there by six o'clock tomorrow, still considered on time. Obviously certain things can't be. I'll be here till a little before two, I have to go to a meeting, so I'll be here until then. You can certainly drop something off at, at my office if you need to drop something off before, before that time. Uh, rest coming up this week is homework eight and quiz number eight on Friday. Homework eight due on Friday, I gave out uh, last week. And quiz number eight will be on Friday in class, the last, last five, 10 minutes of class, depending on, depending on what timing we have left afterwards. And then we have iTunes quiz four, which will be available starting on December the 7th. So starting on Friday, it'll be available until the day of the final exam. So you'll be able to take that for this class anytime through Wednesday, the 12th of December. It'll be available up there for you to take. Again, with the quizzes, that now means that two of your quizzes are dropped. So if you miss two quizzes earlier on, it'll drop your two lowest grades. If not, you will get, you know, you can drop, you can drop one of these. So if you don't want to take that last iTunes quiz after Friday, you just want to deal with the final exam and nothing else, you can certainly skip that without it penalizing you. It'll be end up being a zero and it'll end up being one of the two grades that gets dropped. And then the final exam for us, again, I'll go through over a little bit more detail probably on Wednesday or Friday. I've gone through it a bit already. Um, pretty much breaks break into two parts. That'll be next Wednesday, right here, same time. You get, you get Monday off, and then from us at least, we probably have another final exam. But Monday off from here, and then we'll finish up on Wednesday. We'll have the on Wednesday we'll have the final exam. You will ha you will have the full two hours if you need it. Uh, typically, like the other exams, people typically have not needed it. Usually after an hour or so, most of the class has has finished it up or gotten so sick and tired of looking at it that they just threw their hands up and turned the rest of it in. So hopefully not that bad, but that's you'll, ha you'll have the entire time, so as much time as you want to have for it. And I am going to, um, I will probably bring in, I'll try to remember when, I'll try to get them in by Wednesday. I will print out the review sheets again for these last few chapters, and you'll be allowed to use those again for the final exam. So you can use those with, like we did with the last exam, where I gave you the review sheets from those chapters. I'll give you the review sheets from the chapters that we've covered since the final, since the last, since the final, since the last exam, and give you, and let you do those. You can make any notations you want on them. If you want to make notations for stuff that's earlier, that's fine as well. But specifically, those ones you'll be allowed to bring and use that single, that, that set of papers only for the, for the final as well, as, as we did on the last exam. So give you a little bit of confidence and Actually, I think more it helps you if you actually write the answers in. I think it helps you more in preparing it than it actually may, may at the exam, but maybe that extra little bit of confidence having, having something there in front of you. Questions? Last week, so coming down to the end. All right, picture of the day for today, and I'm going to have to turn this other light off for a few minutes so we can see this a little bit better. It's a lunar halo. Now, the moon, the moon is there. See that nice bright object is the moon. And typically, you may have seen this on a nice cold winter's evening. If you've looked up at the moon, you see this kind of glowing ring around it. You may have actually been able to see that at some point. It's caused by ice crystals in the Earth's atmosphere. So when you look through, the moon's light coming through the Earth's atmosphere gets bent and refracted just like a lens and then comes around and shows up in a circle that's about 22 degrees across. Now, 
The moon itself is about half a degree, so that means this would be about 44 times the size of the full moon. Doesn't look anything like that in this picture, right? That does not look like you're going to fit 44 moons across that, uh, that image. And that's right, that's because the moon is so vastly overexposed in this picture that instead of being a little tiny object here, it actually looks quite big just because it's overexposed and washed out the rest of the, the, the nearby you know, pixels in the camera. So it's wiped out, it's actually many, many times bigger than the moon really would look if you just took a quick snapshot, snapshot of it. But if you did that, you would then not be able to see a lot of the other objects that are visible here. You have, you know, there's Orion. You might be able to make out there. There's the four stars in Orion. There's the belt of Orion. Should recognize that. We spent enough time drawing that a couple of weeks ago, so maybe it's, it should be ingrained in your memory, in your memory right now. And some of the other objects up over here in Taurus, Jupiter, is now traveling in that in that general direction. But the halo, what we're really pointing out in this one, the halo we've seen, we've seen, but we're seeing an actual another halo. So not just this one at 22 degrees, but you can see part of the arc of one down here, perhaps. And again, it looks much better on the other. If you look at it on the computer screen, for example, you get a much better view of it. But there's actually an arc here, which is part of the halo, and then actually it'll extend all the way around the moon at a much larger size. So instead of 22 degrees, you're also seeing a much fainter one. You may have seen a similar effect with a rainbow. If you've ever seen a rainbow, sometimes you see a secondary rainbow where you not get not just the one rainbow, but another rainbow as well further outside of it. So you can sometimes see that secondary rainbow if everything is bright enough and the conditions are just right. That's something like what is happening here, depending on exactly how those ice particles are orientated in the atmosphere and how they're bending the light, allows us to see not only this primary halo, which is quite common, but the much rarer one that is out, that is out here. Okay, so that's two. How do we get a quadruple halo out of two? Okay, two would be a double halo. Actually, the way the halo works is that part of it, it's not just the whole ring halo. There's actually an arc that forms primarily. So there'd be a primary arc portion here and here that forms. And then there's a fainter ring portion. So you can see how part of that is a little bit brighter and how part of this arc is a little bit brighter. So that's how we end up getting four is that you have the two arcs associated primarily with each one and the whole ring portion that goes around the entire uh, entirety of the moon that you can see very prominently in the one and vaguely in the other one, just very faint and difficult difficult to see in this image. But again, much easier to see when, it, when it's not projected on the screen and you're looking at it in much higher resolution on the, on say a computer monitor. So, questions on the halo? Give you some light back. So as you can see, while I turn them off, that you can still see the primary halo, but that other one is pretty well washed out just with the lights there. You can, can't really see much of anything down there. All right. Well, then we had, we were looking at last time, I had given you a, we had looked at this, I think is where we'd finished. I'm not going to put the screen up because I did, sh did tell you I was going to show you the video of sort of part of the simulation. But this is what was done with taking taking a universe, taking a whole bunch of particles uniformly spread out throughout the universe, putting in some dark matter as well, so not just typical matter, but actually dark matter as well, and letting that interact gravitationally for billions of years. So after one billion years, you've got some sort of condensation here towards the center of this area. After four billion years, you're starting to get features starting to show up here. And after 14 billion years, 
you're getting things that look a lot more like what we think the universe looks like based on our observations. We see a lot of filaments. We see the filaments, the walls, the great voids where there's hardly any material. So I was going to, I had the video here. Let me pull that up. What this is really the same simulation, but allows you to sort of watch traveling, a video of traveling through it. So what it would be like, you're traveling through, not just part of the galaxy, but each of these objects are galaxies themselves. And you can see the ordinary matter, how it's grouped, the brighter areas, and the, the purplish is the dark, more the dark matter concentration. So you have some of the normal matter, which has gotten condensed into great big you know, clusters and super clusters of galaxies. The dark matter has condensed as well, but kind of surrounds surrounds everything. The, dar the normal matter is what is typically what is all we can see. We can't see the rest of it except through its gravitational effects. But you notice that there's some big areas where there's hardly any, any galaxies, any dark matter, any galaxies, and there's some other areas where there's quite a bit of material. Now this is not a, the simulation is run here, is not being run, this is a video, it's already do been done, so those images have already formed. And this is sort of just moving through it to see all of the ga to see the galaxies. You know what would the universe look like as you move through it? And we've zoomed in towards one portion of it, and then depending on what timing we're at, it's going to start zooming back out here in a moment. There it goes, and it's going to zoom out to look at the whole thing again. But you get the same general idea that we had when we looked at some of those images of you know galaxies scattered around our entire universe. There were groupings together. There were big voids in between them where you did not see a lot of material, and we saw no evidence for material. So this is sort of a simulation to do uh, computer-wise where we can actually look at what the universe would look like. You know, can we, can we make a universe like our own based on the number, the way we think, think things worked in the early universe? And again, you see, look at all the gaps, all the big gaps between galaxies that you're seeing here as this comes to be winding up to an end here as it comes to an end here. But again, a lot of big voids, a lot of big areas where there is a lot of, where there were a lot of galaxies. And what we looked at earlier on, in fact, let me go way back to the beginning here. Now this is a two-dimensional slice. You can imagine this in three dimensions, expand it outwards. It looks very similar to what we saw. What we saw. Some areas with lines and filaments, as you saw there, some other areas with very few galaxies present. So very similar. So we think we can reproduce, at least on a computer, the universe that we see today based on something using the dark matter, using dark matter. So using dark matter in order to get that material to actually condense and start collapsing a little earlier than it otherwise would. Recall that very early in the history of the universe, it was dominated by energy and normal matter and energy were interacting, and that did not allow them, allow it to start to clump until uh, a much later time in the, in the history of the universe. So this is, again, these are just individual images from that same thing that I showed you. Actually, the fly-through was after the 14 billion years. What does it look like at the current time? So what does the universe look like right now? You see all the bright normal galaxies. You can see dark matter, again, scattered, scattered around it. Originally, they would have been much more uniformly uh, spread out throughout the universe at, you know, 4, 13, 14 billion years ago. Now, 
dark matter, I said dark matter doesn't interact with, interact with radiation in terms of being able to absorb it or breaking it apart. It does interact gravitationally a little bit, which means that the background radiation won't be quite as smooth as we expected. So remember I said it was almost completely smooth. It didn't matter which way you looked at it. Well, we should see little tiny ripples in the background radiation when we look all over the sky. This, you've probably seen similar projections of the, er of the Earth, right? Just a map of the entire sky here. So you're seeing the entire sky projected out into this sort of um, oval-type shape. And there are some areas where the, it's a little bit more intense background radiation, some places where it's a little bit less. It's a very, very tiny amount in the difference. It's not a big, di it's not a big difference between even those high peaks and low, va and low valleys. It's extremely minor, and it's taken a lot of technology to be able to get the measurements to measure these very small differences. But we have now been able to see that perhaps, you know, where was the dark matter starting to clump? We can see some evidence of its gravitational interaction, and where it, was, where it left behind more voids, we can see that. So we're now actually able to detect that as well. Now, to give you a little bit of scale here, Here's a much more detailed map. Same thing as we looked at before, but we're looking at it in higher resolution. So, three, three, the values here, the red are gonna be the highest, would be the hottest areas, the most intense background radiation. The dark blue, dark purple areas would be the lowest. There's not much of a difference between the highest and the lowest. That would be, let's see, point, Zero 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 three Kelvin degrees, either above or below that three degree background radiation. We're measuring very very small difference. So yes, it's magnified there in false cover and makes it in color and makes it look like oh it's very bright here and very faint here. Well, you're going, you know, three ten thousandths of a degree colder, three ten thousandths of a degree hotter. So the whole range is like six ten thousandths of a degree. It's pretty good that we can precisely measure the background radiation that accurately. And certainly when we bring the scale down to look at it in detail, it is there. But really, there's not a big difference between the temperatures here and the temperatures here, except that they do exist. And that does tell us about the background, does tell us about the background radiation and that there perhaps was some clumping of material before the real matter could start to we can see the evidence that the dark matter did start to clump a little earlier. That when everything decoupled, when light was free to travel through the universe, as the normal matter started to combine together into atoms, that everything had already started. Because that's this instant we're seeing when we look at the Big Bang, when we look at the background radiation. That's what we're seeing. So once we can see that, then we can say, well, there was some clumping, and then that's we we come into, once this material had started clumping, then it gave a jump start to the rest of the matter. The normal matter, the stuff that we're made up of, you know, everything we're made up of, that was able to clump then because it already had a kickstart. The, the dark matter had started collapsing, had started condensing, and it formed some denser areas that were then, th that were in, that were then allowed to gravitationally interact with the normal matter once everything decoupled. Now, when you look in much more detail, this is just zooming into one of these little tiny areas and just seeing that there's almost this little rippling where there's brighter and fainter areas 
Again, not anything specifically forming yet, but material just starting to get a little bit denser. So think of it almost as those dark clouds that we talked about when we talked about star formation, starting to form, starting to get these really big clouds of material. In this case, it was dark matter, not normal matter, but just starting to condense. All right. So, almost done with chapter 17. Just as a review here, since we've spent a couple days on this, I uh, didn't really want to rush through this one. This one, you know, get, gets your mind going a little bit anyway, so figured we need to take our time through it since we're doing real well on, on time, time scales for the, for the class. On the big scales, what we found was that the universe was homogeneous and isotropic. So it doesn't matter what section of the universe you look at. It doesn't matter what direction you look at. The universe looks essentially the same. So if we pick some big area of the universe, again, hundreds of megaparsecs in size, and I pick another, and someone else picks another one, you know, I have each of you pick, okay, so randomly pick a section. They're all going to look about the same. The details will be different. Yes, if you map out what's in this one, it's not going to look exactly the same. But overall, it, it will. You know, the, the Earth wouldn't. If we took out, you know, 100-kilometer swatches of the Earth and everybody picked one at random, well, you might, someone might get an ocean. Someone can, like, get right in the middle of the continent. They're not going to look the same. The universe on the larger scales isn't like that. Yes, if you do it on smaller scales and you do things that are, you know, millions of light years, then, yeah, you might get a galaxy or you might get empty space. There'll be differences. When you look at it at the biggest scales, then everything looks the same. The universe is about 14 billion years old by current estimates, and the Big Bang is what has been confirmed by the uh, background radiation. So the background radiation was a big piece of evidence confirming the Big Bang as the reason for the origination of the universe. What is going to happen to the universe? Well, it's either going to expand forever or collapse, right? We know it's expanding. It can keep doing that, or it could stop and collapse back down. One of those two. Based on the current estimates, and current measurements, it's not only expanding, but it's actually expanding faster. It's actually accelerating away from each other due to the dark energy. So something is seeming to be pushing the universe apart right now. The density we call that, we, what's going to happen depends on the density of the, of the universe, though. How much material is there? How much matter is there in the universe? The more matter there is, the stronger gravity is, and the more things get slowed down and pulled back together. And that's what we call the critical density is just sort of that borderline between them. Is it going to expand or is it going to collapse? Well, somewhere right in between is that exactly middle area where it's going to expand, but it's going to stop. Right? doesn't make sense. It's going to stop after an infinite amount of time. So it'll it's slowing down and it's slowing down and it's slowing down. And tr 10 trillion years from now, it's still slowing down. And, it's, and 100 trillion years from now, it never stops exactly except after an infinite amount of time. But it's approaching that stuff. So that's just that exact density, and that leads us to the flat type of universe. But again, based on our current measurements, it's actually expanding, and it's expanding faster. So the density of matter is becoming less and less important as the universe expands, but the density of dark energy is remaining just as strong. So it's actually taken over, and it, will, it is actually causing the universe to expand apart faster. All right. This I put the put a, put a table up with a lot of this on a couple, couple days ago, a couple classes ago. A high-density universe is what we call closed, and we think of that as the surface of a sphere. Again, we're going a dimension off when we do that. So when I say it's a surface of a sphere, that doesn't mean the universe is like a balloon. It means that 
you have to imagine that the universe is a three-dimensional balloon expanding into a fourth dimension. Yeah, right? I can't do it. I can't imagine it. If you can, great. You can explain it to me, too, because I, I can understand the, the analogy, but I can't actually imagine that, that, extra, that extra dimension because it's not something you can see. We're expanding into a dimension that isn't in any direction we can possibly look. So that's sort of as, as a sphere, but it's actually, instead of being a two-dimensional sphere, a three-dimensional sphere, it's a four-dimensional sphere as expansion. Critical universe is flat. Think of that as a piece of paper. And the low-density universe is open. So it keeps expanding forever. There's not bounded on it. It's not curving in on itself. And that's more like a saddle shape or here's the example of like a Pringle. So it kind of flares out like that, similar type shape. Now, what I've mentioned again a couple times already, the universe seems to be speeding up. So there's some kind of something we call dark energy that is causing the universe to be pushed apart. So we would expect, right? The universe is expanding. There's all these things of gravity pulling all these galaxies. They're all pulling on each other. They should slow it down. That's what astronomers expected for the longest time. That's why this was a big surprise to them when they found it. You know, it's not that they went looking, oh, let's make up some dark energy, but they expected and they were trying to make the measurements, okay, how much is the universe slowing down? Is it going to stop or is it not? But it turns out when you actually made the measurements, that the universe was not, not slowing down, it was actually speeding up. So galaxies now are expanding away faster than they were billions of years ago. I've already mentioned the age of the universe. The cosmic microwave background, what we were talking about last time, that is the material left over from the Big Bang, material in terms of photons. At that instant when everything separated, when, when everything combined together and matter and energy became very distinct. So earlier on, they were all combined together and matter and energy were essentially like one, and then they combined, they separated here, and that's when energy was free to flow through the universe. So that's the first thing we can actually see. We can't see beyond that time because the universe was not transparent. So there's no way any information from that earlier universe could get out to us directly. All we're seeing is what leaves that portion where the microwave background is. So that instant when everything started to decouple. Similar, as I mentioned, to the photosphere of the sun. Right, the photosphere of the sun, yeah, there's stuff going on down inside there. We can't see it. We can do other measurements. We can do calculations. We can do simulations, but I can't see it. No matter what I do, I'm not seeing through the photosphere of the sun. I can't really see the nuclear reactions going down there. I can make, you know, calculations. I can make simulations and study about them, but I can't see it directly. Universe is matter-dominated to actually dark energy-dominated right now. Earlier, it was dominated by radiation. So very earliest times, the radiation was so much more dominant than the matter that it kept the matter from starting to condense. So that's why the matter did not condense initially. It took it a lot of time for the universe to expand enough that the radiation cooled off, cooled off and expanded enough and lost energy that it went to matter-dominated. And that's where, we've been, where the universe has been for most of its life now, a big chunk of it. And in the recent past, as in the last few billion years, it looks like we've gone over from a matter-dominated to actually a dark energy-dominated. That's why we're accelerating away faster now, because now we're, instead of being dominated by matter or radiation, as the universe expands, they get stretched out and their densities become less and less. But dark energy being a property of space itself is still there. It's still just as much as it was before. It, ha it doesn't get diluted as the universe expands. The decoupling, again, I've mentioned that a couple times, when the, universe, the temperature became low enough for atoms to actually form. 
So instead of having a proton and an electron loose out in space, and it's not just one, it's not just two of them, but billions upon billions upon billions of them, then you started to form hydrogen atoms. All of a sudden, the universe came, became transparent. The energy was able to travel through the universe, and that's what we see. That's what we see as the Big Bang. That's our cosmic background radiation. Again, we can't see before, we can't see anything going on before this. So the cosmic background radiation is predicted by the Big Bang. So it's something that was predicted. So it's a good confirmation of that of the Big Bang theory to explain why the why what we see is what we see here. Last time we also talked about the horizon and the flatness problem. So horizon meant why does this part of the universe know what this part of the universe is doing when there hasn't been enough time for them to really communicate with each other? Hasn't had time for temperatures to temperature variations to smooth out because that this side seems to know exactly what the temperature is on that side. Well, that side's 14 billion years away, light years away from us. That side's 14 billion light years away from us. Combined, that's 28 billion light years. So light hasn't even traveled half that way. Light is just getting to us and when, so how do they know what's going on? Inflation is one thing that solves that. Why does our universe look so flat? Seems to be expanding apart, but other measurements seem to say that it's, that at least our local universe is very, very flat, almost exactly that critical density. Inflation is something that solves that because we're now only looking at a very tiny portion of the universe. So our entire universe formed, and in an instant, it expanded multiple times, you know, 10 to the 50th times, and we're only now looking at this little tiny section of the universe where everything we know is. What's out beyond there? We don't know. Light hasn't had time to get to us yet. So we don't know what's going on further out than that at this point. So that's how inflation solves some of the problems that we see, that we see in this. Finally, the density of the universe seems to be the critical density. Everything looks very flat. We think most of that is um, two-thirds of it or so is the dark energy. Another third of it, almost, is dark matter. And the less little couple percent is us. You know, not just us, but everything we've studied up to this point in the course. So, you know, the planets, the sun, the uh, stars, the gas clouds, the dust clouds, the galaxies, the clusters of galaxies, everything that we can see, the black holes, all of that is normal matter for this definition. Dark matter is something completely different, and dark energy even more so, and that makes up total like 95% of the matter in the universe. So our little 5% that we really studied in this course in great detail is only that little tiny 5%. The universe that we see today, if we try to simulate it, if we try to do those same simulations that I showed you earlier without using dark matter, it doesn't work. You can't form the universe that we see today in the amount of time that we've had. There has not been enough time to do it. So the universe could not have started collapsing really until everything decoupled, until atoms started to form. Then you could have started it, but there wasn't enough time then since then for the universe to have formed all the structures that we see. So we think that that means that dark matter that had different, that was able to clump earlier on in the very beginning of the universe, those first you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years after its formation, was able to clump earlier. It doesn't interact with the light, doesn't interact with the radiation as much, so it can account for what we see today. And that was that simulation that I showed you 
that was done using not just ordinary matter, but dark matter as well, and gives us something that looks overall, in overall structure, like our universe. Is it going to match it completely? Of course not. You know, you're not going to, well, this galaxy is in the wrong spot. Well, it's not going to match that, but overall, statistically, you're going to get the same types of voids, the same type of filaments. We can reproduce a, a universe that looks a lot like our universe based on using dark matter and the ordinary matter, but the dark matter is what's able to condense the first. Chapter worse than black holes, same. Kind of gets your mind a little bit, some of the things. You're trying to wrap your head around some of this stuff. And like I said, it, I don't think that I'm sitting there being able to visualize this you know, universe expanding or that I can visualize what goes on in a black hole. I can't visualize it any more than you can, unless you've got a great imagination. Maybe you can do it better than me. But the ideas and the concepts, you know, I try, I try to take everything down a dimension and we talk about it as being the surface of a balloon. I can imagine the surface of a balloon expanding. And you just have to imagine that you're confined to that surface. You can't leave it. You can't look up. You can't look down. You can only look right on the plane of that balloon. That's what we're doing in three dimensions. We're looking. We can look backwards and forwards. We can look left and right. And we can look up and down. But if there's a fourth dimension, can I be perpendicular to all of those at the same time? I can't do it. I can't, I can't imagine because I can't look. But if someone in a fourth dimension were looking down on us, you know, they'd be able to see right into this building. The building would be wide open, just as you looking down on something drawn on a piece of paper. Well, you can see right in the right inside. You can see the inside of the square. Well, someone looking down from a fourth dimension can see right inside the building and right inside us. You know, we, we'd be wide open. We'd be wide open. Now, if you can ever do that, wouldn't that make surgery nice? No incisions. You just go up into the fourth dimension, pluck out what you need to, and come back. You know, you could do it automatically. You wouldn't have to worry about it. But how you get there and back is. Something you could probably make a lot of money if you can if you can solve that problem. Alrighty, any questions on chapter seventeen? Lots of questions. What are we gonna ask? Right. Alrighty. Well, then we will go on to oops, where's the, where's chapter eighteen? I didn't even pull it up yet. Let's get chapter eighteen started. And we've actually done very good this time. We've actually made it through chapter 18. So into chapter, usually I get to chapter 18. Usually I get to it at the very end, like the last day. So I have to kind of rush through it. So we get to go through it in a little bit more detail this time. I always leave it to the, first of all, it's the last chapter in the book, but it's also one that isn't required for the course. But it's also one I hate to leave out of the course because it's something people find, you know, interesting and maybe a little bit more down to earth after, you know, the mind-blowingness of cosmology and trying to wrap your head around an 11-dimensional universe and try to figure out, not, not only that fourth dimension perpendicular, but now I add six or seven more of them. Oh, boy, forget it. <laughs> Final exam, draw the 11-dimensional universe <laughs> or do the rest of the exam, right? <laughs> but life in the universe, so a little, little, bit, more, little bit more back to back to home here, and we'll actually start talk, get back to talking about the solar system and the local area. So we're getting sort of out of the edges of the universe and coming back to something a little bit closer. And what we want to do is look at a couple different things. We're going to look at what we call cosmic evolution. What do we mean by how do we, how do we get to life from everything we've talked about? We look at a little ladder here. We've talked about a portion of this so far, and there's a bunch of areas that we're going to cover the other half of this cosmic evolution ladder today, or today and Wednesday and into Friday, perhaps. So 
it sort of starts with a lot of the things we've talked about, because you got in order to get life, you've got to start out by forming the galaxies. Right? You've got to form the universe, you've got to form the galaxies, you've got to get to the stars and the planets. You've got to get all that first before you can even talk about having, having life. And then we'll look specifically within the solar system. We'll talk about, you know, where are the likelihood for life to exist in the solar system? We know of one, right? The Earth. We know there is life on Earth. There's possibilities on Mars and some of these moons of the outer planets as possibilities, but nothing that's been confirmed. How about intelligent life in the galaxy? Where in the galaxy would we be likely to look for intelligent life? And what are going to be the problems with trying to communicate with a civilization? You know, if there's a civilization around Alpha Centauri, and we know they're there, and we send them a signal today, okay, then they'll get it a little over four years from now. So if they decipher it and send it right back to us, means we're waiting eight and a half years to get the response. Makes it very difficult to communicate when you say hi, hi, and that's taken you eight years. By the time you're actually going to you know, send any information. So it's very difficult. That, that's the closest stuff. If you want to send information out to stars in Orion, you're talking 800 to 1,000 light years. Not even thousands of light, thousands of years to get a response. If you start about sending them to a distant galaxy, send, send a signal to the Andromeda galaxy. Two million light years to get, two million years to get there, two million years to get back. Not many of us are going to be around in four billion years to get, to get the response. And that's if, the, if there is something there, if you send it to the right spot, and there is someone, and they are able to decode the message. Okay. It wasn't that long ago that we couldn't have decoded the message. You know, if someone could have sent us a signal that we received 100 years ago, would we have been able to decode it? Let's see. That would have been 1912. Radio technology, you know, let alone anything else, what was radio and computer technology to be able to decode that message? So if we have, we send a signal to Alpha Centauri and there's life there, you know, say there's human li humanoid life there, just like us. And there's something like, you know, the 18th century, 1700s, around the time of the revolution. Well, we can send them all the signals they want, we want, they'll get there, but they're not going to find us. They're not going to be able to detect us, you know, if their technology isn't there. So it's only been very recently that we've been able to, we've actually be considered a, an intelligent civilization that can communicate. It's only been within less than 100 years that we've been able to do that. So, and then the ending up again, sort of what I've talked about a little bit there, we'll go on to search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So, what are we going to look for? We're going to look for life elsewhere in the universe. Sort of means that you've got to make a definition first. And I kind of left this up from my previous class. I don't remember if we went through that in detail in this one. We talked about Pluto, why Pluto isn't a planet. But you had to make a definition. They had to make a definition of what a planet was. A planet had to be able to do a couple different things. Pluto was able to do two of them. Pluto wasn't able to be do the third, so it was no longer a planet. Well, if we want to define what life is, then we have to make a definition of what do we mean by a what, do, what is meant to be a living creature. And how do we define it? Because we think of certain things as being necessary on the Earth. You know, all life on Earth is based on carbon, right? Life needs pretty much needs water, needs some sort some sort of other things. And but, you know, what if we want to consider other types of life? You know, you hear you know science fiction will do you know well carbon is right here, and silicon is right below it in the periodic table. So could you have life based on silicon? You know, possibility. Silicon doesn't work quite as well as carbon for all the things that we need for life, but it's certainly a possibility. So could you have life based on something else? We, most life on Earth needs water, right? Needs water. Well, could you use some other liquid? Titan, the moon of, great moon of Saturn, 
has liquid methane on the table. So could you do something that's based on methane? So you've got to look, you know, look outside the box a little bit and say, well, we don't want to look at just, you know, if you're looking for just Earth-type civilizations, you know, we don't have any other, anything else to go by. We only have one example to look at for life. We don't have, you know, a universe where we can study all this galaxy. There's 3,000 civilizations, and 2,500 of them are a lot like Earth, and there's 300 that are like this, and there's 200 that are way out there. Some, you know, we don't have that kind of statistics. We have a statistics of one. So even in terms of thinking about how likely life is to form, we know one place. Were we the oddball where life happened to form, or are we just one of those billions where there is life? So we have to really look outside and try to think about all these other kinds of things. So overall, thinking of a definition of what a life form has to be, and you see that it doesn't take anything, doesn't talk anything about carbon, doesn't talk anything about water, doesn't talk anything about oxygen, using oxygen or carbon dioxide in any way, but some of the general characteristics that we think any life form should be able to have. And one is the ability to react to its environment. So, you know, plants, animals can react to their environment. They're able to grow. So take in some kind of nourishment, whatever it is. doesn't have to be food as we think of it here on Earth. It could be some other kind of nourishment. Instead of water, it could be you know, liquid methane. Could it be liquid you know, ammonia? Could it be some other liquid that would be used? And converts that into energy. So it can take something in and convert it into an energy, energy source. Ability to reproduce. Offspring sharing the same characteristics of the parent. So could be through, you know, cells, cells dividing and offspring being similar to the parent could be a typical, you know, reproduction as well. And, you know, the offspring have the ability, some ability to reproduce itself, to go on, to the characteristics to go on. And finally, the ability to evolve or change. So it has to be able to change over time. So adapt to its, adapt to its you know, adapt to changing circumstances. So those, you see, they're, they're much more general than things you typically think of as life. What does life need if you talk about on Earth? Well, you talk about food, you talk about water, you know, but specifically, we're trying to make them much more general here. Instead of, you know, food and water, just some type of nourishment. Could be water, could be something else. You know, doesn't have to do things exactly the way things are done on Earth. We don't know. Again, we don't know how likely it is that, you know, we're the, we're the oddball, that we do things completely differently than 90% of the rest of the universe, or we're the common one and there's a few out there that are completely different, or is this the only way it works? Again, when you only got one example, it's very difficult to be able to tell that. So here's the, ev here's the evolution, going from the particles forming the Big Bang all the way up to cultural evolution. And we've looked through the first couple of these. We've talked about, last chapter, we talked about the Big Bang and the particle. So the actual universe starting to form. So the big, the big Bang, the cosmic background radiation, that's all back in here. That's the earliest stages. Then as the cosmos evolved, you'd get galaxies starting to form, stars starting to form, and planets starting to form. That's about what we've looked at so far. We've looked at these, these four sections. And that's what we've talked about in, in the class. Now we want to look at chemical, biological, and then cultural evolution because in order to form life, we have to go through all of those. There has to be some sort of chemical reactions to get you to form the initial building blocks of life, because all we formed here is a planet. So now we've got to form those basic building blocks of life, 
Then biological evolution, how does that life change? How does it go from being a simple single-celled organism to being you know, us? You know, that's a big jump, and that took a long time. It's likely that the very first single-celled organism formed you know, four billion years ago on Earth. It took a long, long time to get up to the present day you know, where we are now, to even get even more complex creatures or land creatures. It took many billions of years to occur on the Earth. And then finally, the last few stretches of it are the cultural evolution, Techno developing technology. As I said, you know, we're not going to be able to communicate with a civilization that's, you know, from our point of view back in the 1500s or the 1600s or the 1700s or the 1800s or even 1910, right? We're not going to be able to communicate. If they're at our civilization, right where we were in 1910, we're not going to be we, – yes, we could. We've got to get a spaceship and we've got to get there and then they can go say hi to us, right? But you're not going to be able to send them a radio message. And unfortunately, right now, traveling between the stars is not feasible. We have no way to, to do that. So we can't travel fast enough. You know, even if the fastest spaceship, you're talking you know, tens of thousands of years to get to the nearest star. And then you want to come back. We don't have the technology at the present time to be able to do that. Technically, yes, if you really wanted to build like a generation ship, you, you could. But yes? Last two phases are biologic, petrochemical, or biological and cultural. So, yeah, if you want to build a generation ship where you put, you know, a bunch of people there and, you know, knowing that those leaving, it's going to be their great, 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 great grandchildren that eventually get to the planet, then you could probably travel. You might be able to travel that way. That would be probably something if you really put the work into, we could actually do. But in order, if, you know, to get somebody to that star, you know, like all the science fiction shows, zip around from star to star, it's not something we have any kind of technology that we're even close to being able to, to do. Is faster than light travel? Maybe it is. It's, you, Einstein could be proved wrong eventually. Probably will be proved wrong eventually. Right? Is ever anything ever finalized? There's probably something that's going to jump out that's going to be a little bit better. He's lasted for about 100 years now. Newton was there for 17, uh, 100 and, what is it, 17, almost 200 years. So he hasn't even gotten to how long Newton was, was the, you know, um, def definition, for definition for gravity. All right. So what happened? So we're now looking at the Earth. What was the Earth like billions of four billion years ago? We don't know much. There's not much left over from four billion years ago. The Earth was active. It was constantly volcanically active. Any traces of anything that was there has since been remelted and eliminated. So we don't really, we don't really know what the Earth was like that first billion years. It was too all that stuff's been wiped out. All that information has been wiped out. We can get a pretty good idea based on what we think it might have been like, which was that there were lots of volcanoes. The atmosphere would have been made of, as we mentioned earlier, hydrogen, a lot of hydrogen, which is what everything was forming from. Hydrogen now has since you know, vanished off or been combined with other things. But hydrogen, nitrogen, and a lot of carbon compounds would have been present. As it cooled off a little bit more, things like methane, ammonia, carbon dioxide, water started to form. So earlier on, we wouldn't even have had the water, but as we started to cool off, we started to form some of these other compounds. Remember, the Earth would have been molten early on. As that started to solidify, we would have formed these other materials, these other liquids, these other gases that would have been around. So we can use that as our starting point. You know, what was the universe like billions of, what was the universe? What was the, still stuck on the universe from last chapter. What was the Earth like? billions of years ago, and we can get a pretty good idea of what it might have, what it might have looked like.
detail, we can get an idea of what the surface would have been like, would have been much hotter than we're used to today, would have been different compounds, atmosphere, you notice there's no, no oxygen there, right? No oxygen in the atmosphere. That doesn't come until much later. Nitrogen, yes, there's there, a lot of hydrogen, a lot of carbon compounds, a lot of things that aren't in the atmosphere today that would have been present a long time ago. The other thing that we might have had was this volcanic activity would have had weather. So weathers, lightning, right, big lightning storms. So there's a source of energy. You would have had heating from the volcanoes. You would have had lightning, ultraviolet radiation. You get ultraviolet radiation right now, right? It's, it's gives you, gives you skin, gives you skin burns or sunburns. Well, would have been a lot worse back then. Remember, there was no oxygen. There was also no ozone at the time. So the ozone layer had not developed yet. So ultraviolet radiation was streaming through the atmosphere. So instead of you know, going out at that time billions of years ago, not only would you get burned, but you get burned a lot quicker because you had much more intense ultraviolet radiation. A lot that's blocked out right now would have gotten through. A lot more impacts. A lot of those impacts from meteoroids and comets could have brought extra materials to the Earth. So one of the ideas of where we got some of our water is actually that it came from space. You know, hit by a number of comet impacts, and the water in those could be water that we see now on the Earth. It might not have formed with the Earth originally. But what we think happened over that billion years is that the amino acids started to form. Now, the amino acids are the basic building blocks of the DNA that make us up. So very basic. They're not, they're not, living, they're not a living organism of any kind. They're simply what we call an organic, an organic molecule. But they're a much more complex, a more complex organic molecule. When they put together in the right form, that's when they can form the DNA molecules, as pictured here in the double helix, right, that makes up. You know, that, that incredibly long DNA molecule is what exists at every cell in your body and has all of your genetic information in it. Now, we can recreate some of this in the laboratory. Can't create life, but we can create some other, we can create the basic building blocks. If we take what the Earth was like billions of years ago, what we think the atmosphere was made up of, so what was the atmosphere made up of? What, did, what kind of things were we getting? Lightning, you know, we can simulate, you know, the energy from a volcano. We can simulate, we can get ultraviolet radiation. We can simulate a lot of that stuff. And we can do this in the laboratory, putting together just those very basics that we saw there. And we can see, do we, can we make amino acids? Again, amino acids aren't a living creature, but they're the building blocks that we need. If you don't form the amino acids, you're never going to get that next step. So can we form the amino acids in the laboratory? And the answer was yes. This is the Uri Miller experiment, which actually took those gases that we thought were present in the early Earth's atmosphere here in a tube here, wires for the electrical cur current. You could subject it to ultraviolet radiation. You could do all of any of the things we thought were present in the early Earth's atmosphere. And you have some water that you'd run water through that early atmosphere condense it back out, so water's boiling here, goes up through this discharge chamber, the sparks simulate the lightning that would have occurred early in the Earth's history, and then you condense it back out, and you have a little trap here before it goes back in, and the trapped water there is actually found to be rich in amino acids. So you started with nothing. You started with things like methane and ammonia and water and you know, carbon dioxide, put all that through, and when you go through this, what we simulate being the Earth's early atmosphere, we're able to get amino acids. 
Again, there's no little creature that comes out and says hi to you. Here I am. It's not any kind of living being at all. It's just the basic building blocks that make up that, the things that you'll need to put together in order to make an actual, you know, to, in order to make, you know, a more complex, in order to get towards a DNA, in order to get towards a single-cell organism. So very basic building blocks. We're not getting very far along. We're not getting into a living creature of any kind. We're just getting that we can create the building blocks that go into what must have happened over the next few billion years. And let me just see what was next. No, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on that. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. And so I want to come back. I want to review this at the beginning of the next of, on Wednesday's class and then go on into the, into the rest of it. So I'm going to stop right there for now. Um, if you are submitting the exam replacement, make sure you do do that. You know, either now or if you're turning it in on D2L, use any of the drop boxes that are up there. I didn't make a special one for it. You can put it in homework. You can put it in article reviews. Anywhere in there is, is fine. I'll, I'll, I'll get it. Otherwise, have a good afternoon and the rest of the day, and I'll see you on Wednesday.